and those in the rest of our community. And everyone in the world would have an opportunity to understand and make that confession. Now would be a time, if there are children in the room that want to be dismissed to Children's Church, that you might do that. Let me invite the rest of you, if you would, take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 1. Keep your finger there for a moment. We'll be there in verse 12 in just a moment. Have, have, have you folks ever noticed that maybe the, the best personal disciplines in life always seem to be the hardest to maintain? Things like uh, moderation, um, particularly with food, <laughs> uh, self-control, generosity, those sorts of things. And the same type of thing can be true for churches as well. One of the church's best things that uh, she struggles to maintain is prayer. Continuous and united prayer within the church. This sort of, this sort, that sort of prayer, continuous and, and united prayer, was a mark of the early church. Now, obviously, if I'm in the book of Acts today, you know I'm going to be talking about the early church. They didn't do anything without prayer. From work to worship. And that commitment to prayer was foundational to the strength and the dynamic of the church as it began to, to develop and grow in the first century. Now, in that short passage we're going to look at today, Acts 1, verses 12 to 14, we're going to see one of the key reasons that the church was able to dramatically impact their world for Jesus Christ. And that key reason is prayer. Now the setting for our study today is in the upper room of a house in Jerusalem where the disciples have just returned from the event we discussed last week, the ascension of Christ to the right hand of God. They've just returned from the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives. And verse 14 tells us that the 11 disciples plus Jesus' mother his brothers and other women who were followers of Christ were with one accord devoting themselves to prayer, awaiting the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. So let me invite you to take your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 1, and let's read together that passage of Scripture, verses, beginning of verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. The first thing I want us to look at, first of all, is their, their place of prayer. The text, you notice, says it was the upper room. It doesn't say an upper room. It says the upper room, and it's likely the same exact upper room where they had their last Passover meal with Christ just before his crucifixion in Luke 22. The same upper room where they had gathered, uh, minus Thomas, of course, when Jesus first appeared to them after his resurrection and where they gathered to pray while Peter was in prison. It was the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, according to Acts chapter 12, 12. Now, 
verse 15, which we did not read, but it tells us that there were about 120 disciples gathered there, so it had to be a, a fairly large room. And in Acts 2, verse 1, it was here that they were gathered when the Holy Spirit came upon them at Pentecost. This was a regular meeting place. In fact, in verse 13, it says where they were staying. The word staying in the Greek is the word for abiding, which implies that it was a a long-term headquarters for them. That was the place of prayer. Secondly, look at the period of their time of praying. Pentecost was 50 days after Passover, or after Christ's crucifixion. And Jesus ascended 40 days after his resurrection. So they were gathered to wait for about 10 days while awaiting the the coming of the Holy Spirit. And it says, all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. They were doing just as their master Jesus had told them to do. He had instructed them to continue in prayer. In Acts 1, verses 4 and 8, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Then in verse 8 it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So those ten days were a time of waiting, but also a time of preparation. It was during that time that they chose a replacement for Judas Iscariot, getting ready for the things that they knew they were going to be doing with the coming of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't seem like there's always a time of waiting I said preparation before, but for me that always seems to translate waiting. Before God does something mighty. And it must have been a real challenge for those ten days for somebody like Peter, who was very impulsive, and he'd much rather act than plan. And I'm sure there are a lot of us in here, I'd like to say a lot of us, I know I'm this way, but I'd like to say a lot of us are the same way when we face that challenge. I believe that we're going through a time of preparation even now. The church as a whole, while we wait for the Lord's return, are awaiting. But even we as a congregation here are in a time of preparation and a time of waiting as we wait for God to clearly tell us who it is that will come and serve this body as senior pastor. Abraham and Sarah waited for decades for their first child. Joseph spent years in prison before coming the number two man in Egypt, which we've just studied in Sunday school for a number of weeks. Moses spent 80 years preparing for his final 40 years and leading the people of Israel out of Egypt. Joshua and Israel spent years waiting to enter a promised land. David waited for at least 15 years after being anointed king of Israel before he actually got to assume the throne. Daniel spent years in preparation in Babylon before God used him to influence the leaders of that country. And obviously Jesus' disciples had spent three years being trained and prepared by him before taking on the work of the apostles. Preparation periods and times of learning and obedience are vital for the tasks that we and they are called to. I can look back over my life and it's, of course, hindsight is twenty twenty, But you can look back over your life. I know I've looked back over mine. And, and when you do that and look for the hand of God and how he 
moved some things, and did some things that you would have never thought to do yourself prepare you for where you are and what you're doing. I think that's a, a worthwhile exercise. And I would encourage you, if, you haven't, if you've never done that, do it. Spend some time honestly looking at it and looking for God's hand in your life. For, for example, I, for my own thing, moving, moving you across the country, then moving you back, then bringing you back to California. Uh, the types of, of work that I did early in my life and the way that kind of prepared me for ministry. And then I got into ministry, much of it overseas, and then in church ministry. And all that was to prepare me to come here to be your pastor for a while. It's, a, it's an incredible and it's a, a exercise, and it's a blessing when you look back at it and see how God's hand has worked in your life. Obviously, I think that the, the apostles would have been foolish to try and build Christ's church without the power of the Holy Spirit that they were about to receive, to do it without praying about it. So they were in a time of preparation, waiting for the power of the Spirit to come upon them. And without the Holy Spirit, they would not have succeeded, and we could not succeed in the things that God has called us to do. Thirdly, I want us to look at who was participating in this time of prayer. Verses 13b and 14. Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas the son of James. That's 11. They were all there. Together with the women and mother, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Those were the folks that were involved in this time of prayer. Now... You look back at that, have you ever noticed how Peter's name is always the first one mentioned when the apostles are, are listed in the New Testament? It's an indication of his leadership in that group. Luke lists him first here because of his prominent role in spreading the gospel and the formation of the church here in the book of Acts. And it's interesting also to note that only three of these apostles are even mentioned in the New Testament following the book of Acts. Others, like Paul... Stephen and Barnabas are mentioned very prominently in other books. But Luke also gives prominence to the role of women in his writings. Interestingly, though, he lists Mary on an equal plane with all the others that were in the room. There's no elevation of Mary to some special venerated position as there is in the Catholic Church. And Luke wrote this book about 70 A.D., but look at it in Luke 11, verses 27 to 28. Luke 11, 27 to 28. As he, Jesus, said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Fourthly, and this is where we'll spend most of our time today, I want us to look at the practice of prayer. There were two dynamics in this, at this time that marked the prayers that were prayed for those 10 days, that 10-day preparation period. Those two th dynamics are continuity and community. Acts 1.14 says, All these with one accord 
were devoting themselves to prayer. So the prayers, first of all, were marked by continuity. It says, all these with one accord. That literally reads, they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Continually. There was continuity in their actions. A a steady consistency, a a steady faithfulness for that whole 10-day period. There was no praying uh, by the apostles or the disciples, praying for the Holy Spirit to come. Jesus had already promised the Spirit was coming. They didn't have to pray for him to come. They knew the power was coming. It was just a matter of waiting for God's timing. So Instead, they probably prayed something more like, Lord, prepare us for what lies ahead. Make us ready to carry out the commission that you've already given us. Make us able to appropriate the Spirit's power and then go and do the work that you're calling us to. I think it'll be time well spent for us to dwell just a little bit here in the early verses of the book of Acts. They're like a, an overture in a symphony. Uh, themes that reappear throughout the book. And prayer is a prominent theme throughout the entire book of Acts. First of all, prayer is how the early Christians discerned the will of God. For example, later as the apostles chose a successor to Judas Iscariot, They narrowed it down to Matthias and a man named Joseph, and then they prayed. In verse 24, You, Lord, who knows the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship. They wanted to fill back that position, but they they took it to the Lord in prayer. They narrowed it down. It's kind of like calling a pastor here. Your search committee is narrowing it down. And at the same time, you lift it up to the Lord in prayer. And the Lord will identify, as he did here. We do the same when we're faced with a difficult decision. Right? I mean, we are doing that, right? We're all uplifting the pastoral search committee in prayer during this whole process. We continue to do that. And if somehow you missed the answer to the question I just asked about, we're doing this all together right, again, I want to let you know that the Pastoral Search Committee is, in fact, earnestly taking this whole situation to prayer on a regular basis. And I know a number of you are supporting them in that prayer. The early church also developed its priorities around prayer. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, we find that they have their first major problem in the church. And it's an administrative issue. As the church had begun to grow and the numbers of believers had had increased, a a group of them came to the twelve and said, we have a problem. Our widows are not being adequately taken care of. And consequently, the (laughs) twelve were beginning to spend so much time with some of these issues like this that they were beginning to neglect uh, the ministry of the word and and to neglect prayer. And because they were so overwhelmed with managing the needs of a growing church. As a remedy, they chose seven men from among them to take care of the food distribution so that the apostles could get back to their priorities, prayer and ministry of the Word of God. Sometimes that happens in a church as well, like this. 
Sometimes it's the pastor who gets so overwhelmed with administrative stuff that he starts to move away from spending as much time in prayer and in study of the Word. The same can happen with your leadership. In our case here, they're deacons. If they are so busy administrating all of the other things that need to be done in church, sometimes that takes them away from praying for the needs of the church and taking care of actually ministering to the people of the church. That's why here at First Baptist I have seen that it's a modus operandi, if you will, of your deacons to help empower other folks in the congregation to take over some of those administrative responsibilities. That's why we ask to involve the body in different things uh, so that the leadership can focus on the prayer and the ministry, on what it takes to, to find God's leader, God's pastor for this body, for example. When, when spiritual leaders fail to pray and spend time in God's word, what happens is they become spiritually malnourished, kind of anemic, if you will. And when the leaders become malnourished and anemic, guess what happens to the rest of the church? It, too, becomes malnourished and anemic. So the early Christians also died and went to heaven in prayer. Stephen, who was the church's first martyr, is described in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. I have to tell you, I hope one of these days when I leave this earth, that might be said of me. How about you? Is that, is that the kind of legacy you want to leave? In verse 8 it says he was full of grace and power. Well, it wasn't the grace and power of Stephen, it was the grace and power of the Lord and the Holy Spirit that filled him. He died much the same way as many martyrs have died since that time, all in prayer. In Acts chapter 7, verses 59 and 60, we read of his martyrdom. And it says, And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, I don't know for sure, I guess I should go back and look, if Stephen was one of the witnesses of the crucifixion of Christ. But his prayer as he died was the same as Christ was. Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. And Stephen prayed to the Father for him not to hold their sin against them. The early Christians also, fourthly, did miracles by prayer. Again in Acts chapter 9, verse 40. A female follower of Jesus named Dorcas. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm glad I don't have that name. But Dorcas was a, a Jewish follower with a Greek name. But she had died. But Peter says in chapter 9, verse 40, put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. It's one of those many miracles that we read about that the apostles did. The early Christians also defeated Satan through prayer. Acts chapter 12, 
verses 1 to 19. That passage tells us the story of Peter's arrest and incarceration by Herod. The night before his trial, he was broken out of prison by an angel. But what was going on in the meantime? Verse 5 of chapter 12 tells us. It gives testimony to what the other disciples were doing that resulted in the defeat of Satan's plan. 12.5 tells us, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. They continually lifted him up in prayer, and he was released. Of course, we all know that also he went home and knocked on the door, and the girl that answered the door didn't recognize him. <laughs> but that's another story. Understand that Satan tries to limit your praying because he knows your praying will limit him. Sixthly, lastly, the early Christians deployed their missionaries through prayer. When the time came for the new church at Antioch to send out their first missionaries, there was no missions handbook to follow. They simply got together and prayed. So in Acts 13, 3, it says, After fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them, that is Paul and Barnabas, off to the mission field. They started their missionary outreach bathed in prayer, not like everything else that they did. Their prayer was marked by continuity. Now, if we follow the Acts model, we too will get in the habit of bathing everything that we do in prayer. Our missions, uh, youth ministry, children's ministries, teaching ministries, preaching ministries, our search for a new pastor. And if, if some of those ministries are currently missing, then we need to be praying even more about them. If those are, if those are ministries we believe that as a church we need to be providing, then uphold them in prayer. Say, Lord, show us how and who. But do it continually. It's not just for the people that are going to be doing the ministry. It's for everyone who's involved in it. And if you're part of this church, you're involved. So that means you should be praying. You should be praying. We all need for prayer to be, uh, we all need to be in prayer for all the ministries of First Baptist Church. Continually. All aspects of church life need to be upheld in prayer. Of course we want to uphold our sick and our shut-ins and, and things like that, but Sometimes we forget to pray about, okay, and then we've also got some things going on this week that we need to lift up to you in prayer, Lord. We need your power. We need your presence. We need your guidance. Keep them lifted up in prayer. All that brings us to the second mark of the prayers that were being prayed by the disciples in the early church. Their prayers were marked by community. And there's another word here that I will use that is somewhat interchangeable here. Community and unity. It tells us that the apostles and the disciples prayed in one accord. That's what this community is about. They prayed in one accord. In his writing, Luke uses the words homothumadon. He uses that word ten times. And it's only used one other time in the whole New Testament. And it means to come together with unity and oneness. They were praying with one mind. You know, it's, it's a concept that somehow... I. I'm not sure exactly how, but modern society seems to have lost some of the clarity of oneness. Husbands and wives seem to have lost the clarity 
of God's unity and oneness in the marriage relationship. And the oneness, the one mind, the one accord of church members. And we allow ourselves to be separate. And yet he calls us to pray for one mind. And that one mind is his mind. To be united in what he wants. One commentator that I read noted a five-fold unity as they prayed. First of all, it was a unified plan. I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. So there was a plan. Secondly, there was a unity of place. We talked about already the upper room. A regular place they went back to, their headquarters, if you will. Thirdly, there was a unity of purpose in waiting for the Holy Spirit and carrying out the great commission that Christ had given them. Fourth, there was a a unity of persistence as they persistently or fervently prayed until the Holy Spirit was sent upon them. And then fifthly, there was a unity of prayer itself. They were united in what should be accomplished through their prayers. I don't know of anything that is more unifying in prayer. I've been involved in in counseling sessions with church members, and I've, I've counseled husbands and wives pray together. Because it is really, really hard to be angry with somebody that you're praying with. Try it. It's really hard. In addition to praying in one accord, though, the early Christians waited in one accord. They not only prayed in one accord, they waited patiently together for the gift of the Holy Spirit to be brought to them. That 10-day waiting period could have fostered impatience. And it could have fostered disagreements among the apostles. And I've seen in churches it could have also promoted multiple agendas when leadership is uncertain. Leaders will arise and want to take you in different directions. Or somebody will develop a new agenda. But it did not happen here. Fourthly, they worshipped in one accord. And we'll look at this in more detail later in Acts chapter 2, where we see the early church and their day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. Fourthly, they also worked together in one accord. The first major theological issue that they faced was whether or not new believers that were not Jews had to start following some of the Jewish customs. And uh, the church leaders, they were brought this issue and waited for an answer. They met together in one accord and reached a consensus response in Acts chapter 15, verse 25. Their response was, It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas and Paul took the message, the united, one accord message from the early church leadership out to them. Coming together and focusing our energies on worship and prayer and serving the Lord is infinitely superior to coming to church to catch up on gossip or who disagrees with whom about what. 
When our focus is unified around him, differences and disputes will dissipate and fall away. So we here at First Baptist are seeking to call a new senior pastor. Our church life and especially our prayers need to be marked by continuity and also by unity. And, and I will tell you as kind of a, I, I call myself a newbie to our congregation here, but I've seen a lot of that, folks. It's been tremendous to see. The continuity of prayer, I've been in contact with the board since back in October. So I've seen the continuity, but also the unity in prayer, even among the body here for the last several weeks. Praise God for that. Keep it up. Be diligent with that. So you'll find that over the weeks and months here that many times in my messages I'll come to a point and I'll ask a question. So what? You spend some time putting together some facts, reading some scripture, making a few points, but so what? What do I do with this? How does this apply to me or to my family? So today our so what brings us to a very important aspect of prayer, and that is the power of prayer. Now I want to mention to you, um, I know that the, the deacons have approved and there's some thought to having a family movie night sometime in the near future. And uh, a movie that's been suggested, The War Room. How many of you have seen that? Yeah. Uh, I just saw it last night for the first time. I have to tell you, it's a good movie. And it, it covers these subjects. It underscores the subject of the priority of prayer and the power of prayer very, very effectively. So be looking for that in the bulletin ahead. And also, if you're interested in helping make that happen, I know Elizabeth could use some help in making that happen. So why don't you let her know this week, Elizabeth, I'd like to be involved. I'd like to, I'd like to help make the family movie night happen. And then she'll, figure, she'll, she'll know a way that you can get involved and do that. But let me encourage you to, to come and watch the movie, even if you've seen it before. And maybe bring somebody else from outside the church that either should be a part of the church or should be at least a, part, a member of God's family and bring them. And, and look how prayer can affect people's lives and power. <laughs> An unsolicited commercial, sorry. <laughs> As we make our way through this book of Acts, we're going to discover that there are a lot of evidences for the power of prayer. One of the best comes from Acts chapter 17, verse 6, when some opponents of the gospel of Jesus described Paul and Silas, as well as the other dis uh, disciples, as these men who have turned the world upside down. <laughs> Isn't that great? That's powerful. It's been a long time since this world out here has looked at the church and said, wow, look at the impact that organization is having. And yet here, men who have turned the world upside down. That's a powerful thing. I would pray continually, and in community with you all. That God would see to grant us that kind of power through prayer. Every follower of Jesus Christ in this 21st century and every church in which they, they worship, if he would just give us that power. No, I should not say that. I said if. That's wrong. He has given us the power. If he would just show us 
how we can effectively use that power to influence our families, to influence our community, and influence the world. If we could just have that power operating in our church. Notice this next slide, uh, prayer. It's the fastest thing on earth. It reaches God even before you say it. That's power. I pray, folks, that, that we, through the, the priority and the practice and the power of prayer, would be able to revolutionize our world and be revolutionized by it for what God has called us to do among the people by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may we then revolutionize our community and the world and turn them all upside down for the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this record of the early church. And we, we've put that tag on it, the early church. But the fact is, there is still the church. And we are still the church. So Lord, uh, the work isn't done yet. There are still people who don't know the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are some who still have not responded one way or the other to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we know that we are called, we have been commissioned to take your gospel everywhere that we can, everywhere we reach. And I, I think from the fingers that I've seen from this church alone, there's no place we can't reach. So Lord, may we take that gospel with us. May we uphold each other in prayer. May we lift up those who are serving us as missionaries that we support around the world. Lift them up in prayer as they do that very, very same thing. May our prayer be continuous and may it be united. In Jesus' name, amen.